0: Hi, Mary. How are you doing? Sun's out. Feels like, you know, summer 2022 is, is here, right?
1: Summer is upon us. It's nice, isn't it? Nice to be able to kind of sit out lunchtime and get a bit of sun. I'm particularly looking forward to sitting out because I've got new garden furniture arriving today, which is obviously nice. very nice. exciting. And it's a bit more sun lounger focused rather than sitting upright focused. So looking forward to lounging for the rest of the summer weeks, really.
0: Definitely, definitely. A definite bull market in garden furniture here, I reckon, seeing quite a lot of that going on at the moment. You, you've been away recently as well in kicking off the summer a little break?
1: Yeah, that's right. Mini break uh, last weekend we were in Lisbon, which was lovely to be honest. It was it was actually cooler than uh, than the UK, but I hear the UK was very hot, so so maybe that was a good thing. And it was the third time I've been to Lisbon, so what was really nice for me was that we didn't try and cram in too much sightseeing. So we kind of just soaked up the atmosphere and the culture rather than running around in the heat in a very hilly city. So yeah, good food. Went with a couple of friends, which was really good fun. And they had a festival on over the weekend. So we went to the, the Saturday of the festival. So we saw Liam Gallagher. We saw The National and News, which was excellent. So really, really, really good start to the summer how about you dan you've been away as well
0: yes we were away a couple of weeks ago we were, in, we we're in devon not the really hot week unfortunately that would have been nice wouldn't it but we, we were away the week before that we were in north devon it was really nice we got got out on the beach sort of first time that leo has really been able to run around and play on the beach and he really loved it so that was that was really really nice to see and yes interesting one for the stats side the beach there in Woolacombe was actually voted the times newspaper's favorite beach of the year last year and um I, i'm normally on top of those times kind of uh top three things i wasn't on top of that one but i can see why very very nice beach indeed
1: ah so you're a trendsetter without even realizing it dan
0: yeah or following the cards without realizing it one or the other <laughs> yeah the big criticism of those times lists is always mu- much more backward looking than forward looking i think once once they call it you can probably be mm. sure that it's kind of well well known
1: yeah yeah but still it's still a good trip though
0: yes it was lovely it was it was really really nice thank you we should probably remind people uh probably final time final call for the uh drinks next week 30th of june uh thursday 30th of Mm -hmm. june we are going to be in the royal oak in malibone um give us a shout come and join us be great to see everyone
1: absolutely yeah and dan should we talk about this week's episode because i think it's a particularly timely one isn't it in terms of some new stats being available on diversity and inclusion for investment managers um so lcp report i think out last week so we'll link to that in the show notes we've got one of the authors joining us to talk about it today but but yeah really great to have that data available for the first time
0: yeah that was it wasn't it new data set new information we wanted to um, try to do a podcast really quickly to sort of dig into it get a sense of you know what's the data saying what was the availability what was what was trying to be achieved by it all so i think hopefully a really good conversation with last year on uh, yeah on all things related to diversity and asset management.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: On with the show. Let's do it.
1: Welcome to Investment Uncut.
0: In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis.
1: And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK including pension funds, wealth managers, and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com.
0: Joining us this week to discuss some brand new statistics on fund manager diversity and inclusion, we are delighted to be joined again by LCP consultant, member of our responsible investment team, and recent speaker at the Lord Adventure Debate, Larsia Shakeran. Larsia, welcome.
1: Hi, thanks for having me again. Welcome back, Larsia. That last... Job title, if you like, that Dan mentioned, The Lord Deb Debate. We spoke a little bit about that when we first had come back from it. And Dan and I were waxing lyrical about how amazing the event had been. But obviously, you sat sort of on the other side of that in terms of being one of the key panellists. Do you want to give us the inside track on how you got involved, what the process was like, which side you were arguing for and what the result was?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it wasn't incredible experience. It was quite bizarre in some ways. Obviously, the topic was on diversity and inclusion, but we were in an old building in Westminster with the names of lots of people on the walls who probably weren't big supporters of diversity and inclusion. (laughs) But it was so cool because actually we had a conversation about diversity and inclusion where the question wasn't is it a good thing? It was more we all agree it's a good thing, but how are we going to get there? And we specifically talked about the use of quotas and whether that's what we should use to improve diversity and inclusion on pension trustee boards in particular how did I get involved I mean I fully don't understand how I got involved but basically one of the people who was organizing the event saw me speak at our LCP conference and I spoke about the S ESG, so social issues when it comes to investing that's an area I'm very passionate about both inside and outside of work And I guess he knew that I didn't mind saying things that were a bit controversial, so (laughs) decided to invite me to come and be a bit entertaining on the panel at the debate. And it was just a brilliant experience. I spoke with some really, really awesome panelists, which has been great to get to know them and actually had so many good
1: conversations with everybody in the room afterwards. Awesome experience. I don't want to call it a show because it was a really important discussion, but I think to use the phrase anyway, I think you did steal the show on the night. So lots and lots of energy coming from the stuff that you said, which was fantastic. Oh, thanks. Yeah, my parents would agree with that as well. (laughs) And no doubt they watch the recording multiple times. (laughs) Oh, yeah, definitely. (laughs) Excellent. Should we shout out to your parents now? They're probably listening to this as well.
2: (laughs) Oh, yeah. Hi to them.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. So should we get into the subject matter for today? I guess we're talking about two things in particular. We're going to talk about the Asset Owner Diversity Charter, then we're going to come on, talk a little bit about LCP's recent questionnaire and the data we've got and the data we're reporting on, on asset managed diversity. Shall we start with the Asset Owner Diversity Charter? Do you just want to maybe run us through sort of when it came out, what it's trying to achieve and what does it actually involve?
2: The Asset Owner Diversity Charter was a collaborative effort of lots of different consultancies and asset owners, most of which were part of the diversity project as they were kind of the overseer of this whole project. And it basically involved us all coming together with a common goal to improve diversity and inclusion in our industry. And rather than kind of competing against each other to do diversity and inclusion first, whatever that means, we worked together to think about what's the best way we can move the dial on the whole industry. And to do that, we came up with the charter, which consists of two parts. The first part is the asset manager Diversity and inclusion questionnaire And this is a really comprehensive questionnaire that consists of some qualitative questions and some quantitative questions. But the idea is that every signatory to the Asset Owner Diversity and Inclusion Charter sends out the same questionnaire to all their managers. And they do this annually. And this means that managers aren't having to kind of collect different data or different responses for each person that contacts them. There's a more uniform way of that. And that actually helps directly achieve one of the goals, which is to standardize the collection of diversity data in our industry. So that's one part of the charter. Then the second part is the diversity toolkit. And what that involves is basically a set of instructions on how you can actually incorporate diversity and inclusion considerations into your investment work. So into your manager monitoring processes, into your manager selection, your manager appointment, how you can make sure that diversity and inclusion is feeding into all of that. And that launched in the second half of last year. So we were one of the founding signatories, LCP, where we signed up in September. And the idea is that within a year of committing to the charter, you do take upon the actions of sending out the questionnaire to all of the managers that you work with and also incorporating the actions from the toolkit into your
1: processes. Who were we alongside last year in terms of who else was a founding signatory or who else has signed up so far? I think you said it's a mix of asset managers, consultants. And any other sort of large investors? I think a couple of large pension funds were in that first.
2: So it's not actually any asset managers that have signed up to it. It's consultants and then also large asset owners. As you said, it tends to be the larger ones, pension schemes mainly. The smaller pension schemes for other kind of investors, they will often refer to their consultant to make sure their consultant signed up and is incorporating the key actions from the charter into the work that they do. But at the moment, there's about 20 signatories to the charter, but that's increasing over time as well.
0: It's a really good point that you made about the collaborative angle to it. I think we're finding this more and more in responsible investing generally, that the inclination is to try and all compete against each other to be the best in a particular area, whereas you can often have by far the biggest impact by doing something collaborative. Any insight into how, in this particular case, that was how we cracked that, how the group managed to get over that and get on board with something collaborative?
2: I mean, I think it helped that everybody that was involved was already part of the diversity project and was already very passionate about improving diversity and inclusion. And I think it's very clear that if we want to improve things on an overall industry level, we need to do whatever's best for that rather than just focusing on what's going to make us the most profits in the short term. Because actually, if we're thinking about what's good on a long-term basis, it's for all managers in the whole industry to improve their diversity and inclusion practices.
1: And I suppose it recognises that you've got multiple asset owners being supported by multiple consultancies, et cetera, but all investing with a collection of the same investment managers. So actually, as you say, using that consistent language and asking them the same questions means they can focus their time as well and make sure that the data gets better. We're going to come back to data, which I think probably we'll touch on that when we talk about the data we're collecting. But last year, I guess just thinking about the diversity charter. So it came out in the second half of last year. Why this charter and why then, but why now? Why is this the focus now?
2: I mean, why this charter? I think because we all now know in our industry that diversity and inclusion is just so important. It's important from a risk management point of view, from a decision-making point of view, but also I think, especially with the kind of move in responsible investment getting so much focus we are realizing how interconnected the financial world is with the wider world and with ordinary people in society and the fact is our industry does have a lot of influence on the wider world so it's really important that the decisions we make and the people making those decisions are representative of the people whose decisions we impact And why now? I think it's just because of how much diversity and inclusion has been getting a lot more attention at the moment for lots of different reasons. Partly it's because regulatory scrutiny. Partly it's because of social justice movements around the world. But I think the fact of the matter of the fact that diversity is good for risk management and diversity is good for representing wider society. That was still true five years ago, but I don't think our industry was necessarily in a position where they were ready to think about it and address it in the level of depth that this charter now goes into.
1: Should we move in terms of what LCP's done in relation to the charter? So you mentioned the two aspects to the charter, the toolkit and the questionnaire. So we've just gone through the process of sending out that questionnaire to all of the managers that we work with and have mutual clients with. Can you talk a little bit around the process that we've gone through, and then we'll talk about what the results show?
2: So we have 176 different managers in our investment research universe, and we sent our questionnaire to every single one of those. So of those that we sent it to, 70 were able to respond to at least some of it. But actually, more than just 70 managers engaged with us on the back of it, just not all of them were in a position to complete the questionnaire at this point in time. Now, as I said, the questionnaire itself is very comprehensive. It asks for both qualitative data and quantitative data. And the quantitative data goes into quite a lot of detail around what the actual representation, promotion levels, recruitment levels looks like for people from different minority groups. And not all the asset managers do collect that data. I mean, I think our whole industry is now undergoing an exercise to improve the data that we collect when it comes to diversity. And we don't really mind that not everybody was able to collect that data because we hope that by sending this survey out, it sends a message to the managers that this data is important to us. It's important to their clients. And so they do start collecting it. So overall, we got 42 responses with the full set of quantitative data and 70 responses in total. So just important to kind of keep that in mind when we talk about some of the results, because obviously it's not representative of the full asset manager universe that we look at. But one of the things we are hoping to see is that as we send this out year on year, those numbers do increase and we are getting more people being able to provide that information.
0: It's an interesting point, isn't it? Because I guess there's obviously a trade off there. And I guess a decision was taken to still go for the more comprehensive data request, even though presumably it was kind of known up front that, that was going to be a work in progress for quite a while, rather than kind of water it down to stuff that people knew that could probably be given to us by most managers that is a important trade-off to grapple with isn't
2: it exactly but I think that was almost future-proofing it in a way because it sets quite a high expectation of what we want to see we want to be in a position where everybody is able to answer that questionnaire we know we're not there now but if we send this questionnaire right now managers can start working towards being able to respond to all of it because we're going to be sending it out year on year, we will see improvements. And I think if we had kind of watered down the questionnaire, we wouldn't necessarily be encouraging and seeing those improvements.
1: Absolutely. So, yeah, collecting the data we want to ultimately be able to collect. I suppose I was just reflecting when you were saying about the different numbers. So, you've got the 70 that showed willing, and that's great. And you've got the, was it 42 that were able to give complete responses, and you can't help thinking that that 42 are probably the managers that have been most engaged in this area for a longer period of time. It could almost be self-selecting that the actual numbers you get from the quantitative questionnaire responses are from firms that are possibly better than the average on these sort of DNI stats. I mean, we'll come on to the stats in just a moment. Did you feel that? I mean, obviously the 70 that could give qualitative responses and not the numbers. Did you notice a difference in the qualitative responses of the 30-odd that couldn't do the numbers versus the 40-odd that could in terms of was it clear they were less far along their journey or actually were you getting very similar messages it's just some potentially have better hr systems that track this stuff already
2: i think it was more the latter i don't think we saw any key differences in kind of some of the initiatives they'd signed up to some of the things they were doing to improve their processes and improve their diversity and inclusion I'm going to be honest, collecting diversity data is hard, especially if you're a smaller firm. We're going through the exercise of doing it internally at LCP at the moment, and it does require having all your employees understand why you're collecting the data, go in and add their own data to the systems, which obviously is optional. Nobody can be forced to provide that sort of data, and it can be a really big exercise. And as you said, the HR system itself needs to be correct to ensure that the data is being held in a confidential GDPR compliant way, all of that. I do have sympathy for managers that are at the start of their journey there and hopefully the signal that we're giving them by sending this questionnaire will help them internally prioritize collecting
1: that data. You can see the justification process being a lot more straightforward if you can say our clients effectively are asking us for this.
2: Absolutely. We
1: do need to engage with it. And lastly you mentioned the questionnaire was comprehensive and it was asking about representation from different minority groups. How granular does that go? I mean is the list itself future proof because it's quite a high-level list or open for interpretation? Or do you see there being sort of additional factors added in future years because we've not gone that deep in terms of minority groups?
2: So firstly, I don't think you can ever future-proof something in the diversity and inclusion space because of the fact that our thinking evolves so much, language evolves so much, our understanding of different groups evolves so much. I mean, we had a conversation earlier before this, and even the name of the charter, That focuses on diversity and inclusion that now seems a little bit behind because now our industry has started using the phrase diversity equity and inclusion rather than just diversity and inclusion where equity talks about kind of leveling the playing field to make sure everybody has what they need in order to progress so i think there's no way it's going to be completely future-proof and i don't think that my own thinking is going to be future-proof and i hope that i learn as i develop and move on in this world but What I do think is that it does cover quite a lot of different groups. Most of the kind of data that has been provided is based on gender and ethnicity at the moment, because that's just what most firms are currently able to measure. But there is also questions around what data they collect on other protected characteristics like age, disability, socioeconomic background, sexuality. And there are kind of free form boxes that people can fill in about other characteristics as well. But no, I don't think it's going to be completely future proof. It may not be as granular as we want it to be as well. There are kind of difficulties around providing information that's too granular, because it can allow you to identify individuals within a firm. So there's a whole issue there as well. So it's quite hard to get the balance. But I think it's a start. That's what matters.
1: Absolutely.
0: Should we sort of dive in then and get to some of the headlines? some of the key points come out of the data. Do you want to sort of give us maybe a handful of the key things that are jumping out to you from all the data?
1: Dan referred to findings in a report. Do you want to just give a 30 seconds on why we decided to produce a report on this area?
2: Honestly, the main reason is because it's really interesting. It's the first time we've had this amount of data and responses to questions on diversity, equity and inclusion from managers. And it's really interesting to see what the trends are, but also to see how that compares between the wider FTSE 100, how that compares to recommendations set out by the government, how that compares to ourselves at LCP. It's really useful to see those trends and also to then hopefully do the same thing next year and the year after so we can monitor how this is going.
1: Last year, what are the trends then that we're seeing in this year's, I guess this is the first cut of data that we've got effectively, but what are we seeing?
2: we split the findings of the survey into two main categories. So we did one where we looked at what does the current picture look like? And that was more based on that quantitative data. So it's what's the actual level of board representation, but also what's the actual level of fund manager representation? Because actually, for investors, it's the name portfolio managers that are the ones making investment decisions that are going to affect their clients. And what we did is we produced some charts and reports looking at what the level of representation was by gender and by ethnicity and also by that kind of intersectional category of people that fit into both minority groups within gender and ethnicity. So I think there were quite a few interesting findings by that. For me, one of the most shocking things was just how many boards had zero levels of representation of certain groups. 82% of the respondents had zero black women on their boards. 63% had zero black people at all. And considering that the people that responded, as you said, were the ones that may possibly were a bit more proactive on diversity and inclusion, that was quite surprising to me. And there were also quite a few boards that had less than 25% representation of women on their boards. And again, that was quite surprising given that the kind of government standard that was set out in the Davis review over 10 years ago was for every board to aim to have at least 25% of their board made up of women. So interesting to see that's not being met. But definitely recommend everybody has a read
1: through the report to dive into those results in more detail. So last year, just reflecting on those comments you've made around that, where the numbers are, and obviously we've got gender and ethnicity as two key things that have been measured. And of course, you've highlighted already that the intersection between them is sometimes the most damaging or underrepresented, I suppose. Maybe this is an unfair question, but do you have a feel for whether the industry is doing better on gender or ethnicity? It seems like we're in different positions, but I don't quite know what the benchmark should be.
2: It's a really good question, and it's difficult to know what the benchmark should be. An obvious one for women is 50%, because unsurprisingly, we make up 50% of the population. Although that might be surprising if you walk into an asset management firm. (laughs) But actually, probably what I would use as a benchmark are some of the government recommendations that have been set out, which we've referred to in our report. So the Davis Review, which came out in 2011, set out a recommendation for 25% or at least 25% of boards to be made up of women and actually the asset management industry in our survey was quite far away from that. So actually 61% had not met that. The Parker review, which came out a bit more recently that looks at ethnicity representation and boards set out a recommendation that every board should have at least one person of color by 2021 on their boards, which has not been achieved on large companies. But actually, within the asset managers that we looked at, only 29% hadn't met that requirement. So if you use just that metric, you would say they're doing better on ethnicity. Obviously, none of that takes into account that there are people that fall into both categories that are women and women of color. It doesn't take into account the nuances of different experiences of people in different ethnic groups. And that's why we've included some specific data on black representation, because black representation is a lot worse than kind of wider ethnicity representation within our industry. We found that the average representation of black people was zero on the boards of the people that responded to our survey. So that is really quite poor. So I think it's difficult to say what they're doing better on. Those are some metrics that you can use, but I think there's a long way to go for both, to be honest.
1: And I suppose one of the purposes of having this whole data collection process is to get better data, to be able to better measure this sort of stuff, and to work out what we think the more appropriate levels might be, as well as, of course, tracking this over time. So this is our first cut of this data in this industry, I suppose. So it sets a baseline from which we can then see where we get to.
0: That's
2: exactly it. Yeah.
0: This question of benchmark, I suppose it is sort of important, isn't it? I notice in the, it looks like in the report, We're citing some UK-wide data there, because like you said, you're operating in the UK, so that's one way of looking at it. But as you say, you could look at London, you could even look wider, so you could look some of these companies are going to be US-based, so you could look at US, you could even look I mean, global is a completely different kettle of fish, isn't it? So that's a few different sort of ideas there. But then there are these particular government reviews, you've already mentioned a couple of them, haven't you? The Davis Review, Hampton Alexander Review, Parker Review, that set some quite clear sort of expectations there as well. There are things to go on, I suppose, is the point, isn't it, where you can start to draw some helpful comparisons?
2: There are. I think it's a really interesting point, actually, because even a lot of these firms are based in the UK, they're not necessarily investing in the UK only. And actually, the investments they're making and the people who are affected by the actual actions of their investing are likely to be much more diverse and cover a much more broad part of society. So actually, if they want their groups to represent the investments themselves, then they should be potentially even more diverse than the UK population or than the recommendations set out in these government reviews. Lastly, do you want to talk about the second part of the report? Absolutely. I think the second part is actually the more interesting one because it's what are people actually doing to improve things? And this is where the message is actually quite positive because there are a lot of activities that are being undertaken by asset managers there's a lot of strategies in place there's a lot of accountability and i think that the charts and the data that we show in the second part of this survey would have looked completely different five years ago over 80 percent of the firms we surveyed work with external organizations to improve the diversity in their recruitment practices they work with targeted intern and graduate programs like upreach and seo and actually just under 20% use contextualized grading systems, which is when you adjust the grades that you kind of assign to candidates that they got in school based on what their backgrounds are, which I think would have been unheard of a few years ago. So I thought that was really interesting. And actually, most of the firms we survey do have some kind of diversity strategy in place. So even if they don't necessarily have that much diverse representation now, what they do have is a strategy to try and improve that because they've acknowledged that there is a gap that they need to meet. So I think what's going to be really, really interesting is to see in a few years time if these initiatives, these strategies, these targets are actually translating into an improvement in diverse representation
1: as in making those numbers in the first half of the report better.
2: Absolutely, yeah. The other thing I was just going to mention was that in the first half where we've talked about some of those stats, the stats that we've discussed so far were just about gender and ethnicity. That doesn't mean that those groups are more important than other groups. It's just that those are the categories where we have the most data for at the moment. But it's really important that we are also thinking about other protected characteristics too.
0: What we we're just referring to there is that kind of more the point then, rather than taking a view on this data in isolation, as in trying to take a strong view on it's good, it's bad, it's terrible sort of thing today. Am I right in saying it sounds like the focus is more on here's a data point and going forward, how's it going to change? Is that sort of the right way to look at it? Or was there more of a judgment piece on where things stand today?
2: No, I would say on an overall industry level, it's the latter. So it's how are we going to use all this information to progress things together? I think the big message you want to give is that we should all be collaborating. We should all be in this together to move the dial rather than just kind of saying, oh, you're not good at this. You're not good at this. Let's actually try and do something about it to improve things. I think maybe when you're thinking about diversity and inclusion for the managers you work with, you might want to assign a bit more of a score or be a bit more I don't know what the right way of describing it is, but you might want it's to be
1: intentional, isn't it?
2: Yeah, exactly. Because that's when you're kind of making decisions whether you want to work with a certain manager or not. But I think when we're looking at it at a broad level, yeah, we're going to see improvements over time.
1: And that second half last year of the report, is that based on the 70 respondents? So the first half is effectively of the 40 that could do the 40 plus, that could do the numbers. This second half is much more focused broadly on the 70s? is that right?
2: That's right, exactly. And that's because it's easier to answer questions like, do you have a diversity strategy in place? Are you part of this initiative compared to what's your actual gender ethnicity makeup within your firm? Collecting that second half of more qualitative information is easier to do. So
1: more we're able to respond to that. I mean, we can come back to some of the key findings in that second half. The a little bit over 100 managers that didn't give you a response that was usable within the survey, did that tend to be A response saying we don't have the capacity to deal with this questionnaire right now, a complete blank, as in no response being completely ignored. Or did you get any other sort of responses through around their views on the questionnaire or their views on what we were asking that helped to shape some of the thoughts in your report? That's a really
2: good question. So I think what's worth noting is when the diversity and inclusion survey was first created by the kind of founding signatories, they did socialize the questionnaire with asset managers. So They did run it past them. There was also a webinar that was run last November that was basically open to all asset managers to give them more information on this. So actually, we didn't get any pushback on the questionnaire itself, because I think most managers were already kind of aware that it was coming their way. It was more well, some didn't respond at all, but most of them, it was more, we don't have the time right now to do it. We don't have the resource right now to do it. We don't have the data right now to do it. But this is something we plan to engage with in the future, which I think is, again, quite a positive sign overall.
1: As long as we do then see the engagement increase in
0: the future years.
2: Oh, absolutely. And that's why we're tracking these numbers.
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely.
0: One kind of interesting point we were just talking about before we went on air, weren't we? We were just kind of reminding ourselves some of the targets the 30% Club had set, which was relating to sort of board composition in UK FTSE listed companies generally. And I think we got a couple of interesting points of comparison there. I mean, the 30% Club, we'll put a link in the show notes, but the target there was to get to all companies with more than 30% women on boards, I think. And their latest data from April this year looks like it's showing that 97 out of 100 FTSE 100 companies have more than 30% of women on their board, whereas actually among asset managers, it's the other way around, isn't it? We're saying that only something like 40% do have more than a quarter of women on the board. So that struck me as quite a big gap there, that the asset managers are actually behind broader mega cap companies.
2: I agree. That is quite surprising. And I'm not sure what the reason is. I think especially when we see asset managers doing quite a lot to try and improve things, I mean, it's really important that we know that that's actually going to translate into representation. So I'm not sure why the asset management industry seems to be so behind the wider FTSE 100. But hopefully in the next five years, that is going to improve.
0: And coming out of these questions, has it coalesced into kind of specific asks that are being made of fund managers around these particular data points or is it not quite that clear yet? For example, is it an ask saying, right, you need to improve the number of boards of more than 25% women or is it more, you need to have at least some representation from black people on the board? Is it that granular or, or is it not quite there yet?
2: Honestly, I would say it's more you need to disclose this data and you need to collect this data. I think we're still at the point, especially, I mean, there's quite a few targets around this around data collection that have been set by the diversity project, but it's more focused on actually having the data in the first place and collecting it, not just on representation at different levels, but also are you tracking how your progression is, what your promotion rates are for people of different groups. So it's really understanding that so that you can know where the gaps are and why you're having a problem in the first place with ending up. A poor representation at the board level. Right now we can't really tell unless we collect the data whether we're just not recruiting women into the industry at all or whether it's because they leave the industry sooner or whether it's because they're not getting promoted at the same rates. So I think the asks are more around actually collecting that data so that we know where the gaps are and what we need to do to address the issues we see.
1: And presumably the charter doesn't have to stand still so the signatories of the charter can get together presumably once all this first collection of data has taken place and work out what the data is showing, but also what might be the next step.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see. I mean, I know we at LCP have sent our questionnaire out to all the managers. I'm not sure how all the other signatories are getting on with theirs, but given that lots did sign up in September, by September this year, we are going to see quite a lot of people having sent out this questionnaire too. So it'll be really interesting to discuss the findings of that.
1: And as you said at the very start, working together as an industry here rather than against each other.
2: Definitely. I think that's just so key, not just for DNI, to be honest, but
1: for all these systemic issues that we're trying to see an improvement with. Last year, I wanted to come back briefly to something you mentioned partway through our discussion just there, which is the way that the industry is moving on. And you said it's impossible to future-proof anything in relation to DNI, which I thought was a really good way of describing it. Um, you mentioned that sort of our thinking internally at LCPs moved on and from D and I, it's now sort of D-E-I, and you briefly mentioned equity. Could you just give us a little bit more insight in terms of why is it important to have that word in the description rather than just sort of expand our understanding of what the words mean, but not add a sort of a whole new section, if you like, to the name?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I think that one of the arguments that comes up a lot when people are less comfortable with the idea of diversity and inclusion is this concept of merit. So they think that... The best way of having a fair society, of having fair processes in our firms is for everybody to just progress based on their merit. But what that doesn't address is the fact that not everybody starts off from the same point. If you are from a background where you were privately educated, you grew up around people who worked in the same industry as well, you do automatically have a bit of an advantage compared to some of your other peers who perhaps were state school educated or had caring responsibilities or dealt with sexism, transphobia, racism, other issues their whole lives. And equity acknowledges the fact that that is true, that not everybody starts off from the same point. And I think to some of us that feels very obvious, but actually stating that explicitly is really important for... Formally acknowledging that these inequalities to start off with exist, and that actually, if you want to achieve true diversity and inclusion, you need to address that and give people whatever different opportunities they need or different resources they need in order to bring them to that same point so that we can then have diverse groups and be able to treat people in an equal way. So that's why I think it's really important. It acknowledges directly that not
1: everybody starts off from the same point. Great. Very well said, and actually that's set out quite clearly, I think, in another recent publication from LCP, which is aimed at pension scheme trustees. And it's a guide to diversity, equity and inclusion for trustees. So we can link to that also in the show notes.
2: And I would say that a lot of the tips that are set out in that report, even though it's aimed at pension scheme trustees, is actually relevant to all boards, because it sets out a lot of things around just general improving diversity and inclusion when it comes to decision making and risk management.
0: Last year as we're starting to get towards the end of the podcast here, looking forward, what are a couple of things you'd like to see over the next 12 months, and then maybe over the next five years separate out those two time horizons?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So next 12 months, I want to see more data being collected. I want to see that internally within my own firm. And I want to see it within the wider industry. I think that although it can be frustrating and can take a lot of time to collect the data, in our industry, we know that we love data. We believe in the saying, what's measured is managed. And I think when we have data to work with, we are much more likely to take the actions that we need to improve things. So I really want to see that. I want to be able to identify where the issues are. Over the next five years, I want to see a shift towards just looking at the asset managers And actually think more about diversity and inclusion when it comes to the investee companies. I mean, something that I feel very strongly about is that the investment industry has a huge amount of influence over the wider world. And the wider world doesn't necessarily look like the people in the investment industry. So I really want us to be thinking about how we think about diversity and inclusion, diversity, equity and inclusion, when it comes to decisions around which investee companies to actually invest in.
1: And last year, what's one thing you'd like listeners to take away from today's episode?
2: I think it's probably related to what we've just said, and it might be similar to what I've said in other episodes too, but it's just that the investment industry and the finance industry is so interconnected with the wider world. We shouldn't think that we exist in a silo because what goes on in the wider world affects us and our industry, but also what we do can have a really positive influence if we want it to on the wider world.
0: And last year, what do you think is most underappreciated about this whole area?
2: I think there's a couple of things that are underappreciated. The first is that the data is really hard to collect. And although it's really useful to have, it does require the whole industry undergoing quite a big exercise to do it. And the other one is that I think in our industry, we really like to be able to see a direct this risk will affect performance in this way. We like to see that something very explicitly affects investment performance. But actually, that's not the only reason diversity, equity and inclusion is important. I think we need to think about the much bigger picture and the fact that it can be a key systemic risk that can affect a whole society, a whole world, a whole economy. And that will ultimately come back and affect investors too.
0: That is a really good point there, actually, isn't it? Because we were talking to Alex Edmonds a couple of weeks ago about a really similar point. I think he made quite a similar point to that, which is there are those two distinct arguments there. One is arguments over diversity as direct drivers of better performance or lower risk, where you need this data before you can even try and answer that question. But it's quite hard to answer that question in an academically robust way. But then there's this much broader point around societal license to operate, representing society. That is something we ought to aspire to in and of itself.
1: Very well said. Last year, final question from me. Do you have any recommendations for the listeners, books, TV shows, podcasts?
2: Actually, some really good recommendations book that we talked about a couple of podcasts ago which is Rubble Ideas because that's all about how diversity affects decision making and it's got some really really great concrete examples in that so I'd recommend that one.
1: Nice and of course listen back to (laughs) yeah and obviously great
2: reading is reading the actual manager report that we've written because there's lots of interesting stuff in there much more than we've spoken about today.
1: 100% yeah we'll be sure to link. We'll pop a
0: link into that podcast just so people can catch up if they haven't already listened to it. Sounds great. Great. Last year, as ever, it's been a fantastic conversation today. Thanks so much for taking the time.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming back last year. Look forward to the next one. (laughs) That's it from us this week on Investment Uncut, but join us again next week for another episode. Take care. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.